What's up, everyone? Welcome to All Roads from Oberlin, a podcast where we talk to Oberlin alumni about life after graduation, career stuff, and how to just be okay. I'm Julian Worth, a current student, and this episode, we've got three interviews on one topic, values. How do you live a life based on your values when you also have to, you know, have a job in a society? We don't really claim to have the answers, of course, but we do have three solid interviews conducted by awesome 08 alum Patty Stubel. So I'm Patty. I graduated in 0809, double degree. Now I work in tech in Seattle. I also volunteer for Oberlin as part of something called the Alumni Leadership Council, where I really look to connect both students and alumni from a career perspective. You know, in March, when the pandemic hit, looking at the economy that students were about to be thrust into, I really wanted to find a way to give back and to have alumni give a little bit of perspective for students to help them as they think about their careers after Oberlin. And thus, a podcast was born. I personally started my career in nonprofits and have now moved into tech and constantly have questions about the value of my job and why the value of a middle school science teacher isn't more numerically valued, let's say. But I, for myself, have personally settled into a situation where I you know, do work that I really enjoy from a kind of intellectual standpoint. And then at work, I do a lot of diversity, equity, and inclusion work Mm. and work to kind of break down the hiring process to make sure that it is more equitable. You know, I I do think that we, we can still do what we need to do for ourselves kind of emotionally. And I don't know that spiritually is the right word, but I guess that's the word I'm going to use. It's good to hear too. And I think it's something that comes up a lot in the interviews of this episode, because if there was one sort of takeaway from all of these, I'd say for me, it was that it's a lot more complicated than like good job, bad job. It's a lot less intrinsic than maybe it's easy to to think it is when you're a student. Well, I look forward for everyone to be able to listen to, you know, the great guests that we have. But I also think this podcast has been such an excellent journey for me personally to reconnect Mm. with alums and to hear all of the different stories that alumni have and the paths that they've taken. And, you know, I, I think that it will be really valuable for students. Our first interview subject today is an expert in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, and also somehow manages to be a parent. Since we conduct all of our interviews over Zoom, this means that there is some kid noise in the background. Uh, My name is Danielle Mundakis. I'm originally from New York City, the Bronx specifically, Um, and I am now in Pittsburgh. I graduated from Oberlin in 2011. Um, And my title is that I am the Employee Relations and Inclusion Manager for one of the four largest firms in Pittsburgh. I will be completely frank, in college I definitely hit somewhat of a stumbling block around my junior year, it would be. I had just broken up with my boyfriend of a couple of years, at the same time my mom and My stepdad divorced and they were not in a healthy relationship. Simultaneously, uh, my dad, who I had not um, seen or spoken to since I was probably two, my parents split when I was very young. I come from a a mixed ethnicity family. 
and the two sides did not get along. And at the same time that all of that was happening, my dad emailed and said, hey, would you like to get to know me? So it was, it was a lot of convergence of things. And in my limited youth, I was not prepared, I think, to handle that convergence of events. And I just, my head was not in the game. So I stumbled, I ended up taking a semester off. I spent it in Georgia with my dad. I got to know him for a semester and I took classes while I was there. And thankfully the committee was like, you can come back. So I did. <laughs> but for those people who have those moments where they're like, oh God, there's hope. If you shit the bed, clean it up, wash the sheets and keep moving. And, and so then you graduate and what did you, you know, kind of do immediately after graduating? Immediately upon graduation, I went home and I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to like chill for two weeks, probably three days into it. My mother was like, when are you getting a job? And I was like, I thought we agreed. I had two weeks to chill on the couch. And she was like, when are you getting a job? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, so I'll start looking for a job. Um, my sister is... Uh, is 10 years younger than I am. And she went to my alma mater. And when I was a student there, I did tons and tons of admission stores. And I went to pick up my sister the one day from school. And I ran into one of the women in the department who had worked with as a student. She was like, hey, what are you up to? And I was like, my mom wants to know the same thing. Uh, <laughs> and she was like, well, you know, we've been telling you that we would love to have you back. Why don't you come talk with the head of the department? And she was like, well, you know, we don't have anything like permanent, but we'd love to have you part-time and the hourly rate was awesome. So I was like, of course. I came to visit my now husband in Pittsburgh. That's how I'm here. And shortly before doing that, I applied on a whim to a job at a private school here. And I was like, well, we'll see what happens. Like I didn't expect anything. And they called me back and said, we loved your resume. Would you consider interning over the summer since you're gonna be here? And I said, sure. And then two weeks, literally on the dot, before I was due to come home, they said, we have this position that's open. It's not what you're looking for. You're really overqualified, but we really want to keep you. So on the spot, I had to make a decision about relocating. So I took the job, but the position never grew. The responsibilities did. So I asked for those things to change and they weren't super, super open to hearing it. So I put my resume out there and I'd also just had my son. He was like maybe God, two months old, three months old, but I was off on maternity leave, got a lot of no's. And then the firm that I'm at now actually reached out to me and said, would you be interested in an interview? And I was like, sure. They called me back after that interview and said, we loved meeting with you, but we would actually rather talk to you about this office manager position. And then halfway through last year, I talked to my boss about something else and expressed that I really had an interest and a passion for the DEI space and that it was something that I've done in the past and we created another new role. So here I am now. <laughs> I'd love to talk a little bit about the DEI space right now. And for those who you know don't know, that means diversity, equity, and inclusion um, and where you see it moving in this pandemic. Okay, so DEI, um, and I am not speaking about my firm right now. I'm speaking about the world at large. What do I think that people understand about it? Very little. I think that they are three pretty words 
that if I'm honest, most people who sit in the room that make decisions have no clue what they mean. I think I'm actually really blessed to be at a place that is working towards understanding and doing a good job. Um, I, I think a lot of people focus on the diversity part because it's the easy part, right? Diversity is representation. That's easy. Hire a bunch of people who are different. Equality piece comes when you start inviting people into the room. And that's great, but if it's not done well, it fails. And then your diversity also becomes a bit of a revolving door. Right. The inclusion piece is a seat at the table, right? With a place card. <laughs> I think that the inclusion part is a substantive part. It's the part that requires the most work. And it's the part that requires the most understanding. And both of those things mean that it requires the most time. And the reality of business is that time is money. And I think that companies that understand what DEI is and do it well understand that inclusion is at the heart of it all. Where do I think it's going in the middle of COVID? I think that people have a lot more time right now to watch webinars. <laughs> um, but I think that sometimes what happens is that we get so caught up in sharing the more nuanced ideas that we forget that a lot of people don't even understand the simple stuff. So when I start talking about something like, you know, intersectionality or code switching, now I'm speaking a whole different language. Yeah, I think that a lot of folks have to remember to dial it back to the basics and start on a really, really level playing field, understanding that specifically, I didn't say specifically, but especially if you are in, you know, a multi-generational workforce, your level of understanding is not going to be the same. And if you go in with the expectation that it is, there's no recipe to fix that. <laughs> um, the biggest part of all of these things is just understanding the culture of whatever environment it is that you are in at the time. And then working to express your message in a framework that makes sense in that space. You know, to your point of inclusion takes the most time and money or effort, just given everything that's happening and people's not only personal bandwidth, but professional bandwidth, the fact that they're laying people off, all of these things, does DEI just go right out the window? I think that the answer to that is twofold. For some firms, for some organizations, for some companies, yes, it's the short answer. It's always the things that we don't either understand or understand how they generate money that tend to go first, right? The companies that are gonna demonstrate longevity will be the ones you're finding that that's not the area that they're cutting from. Because again, if you understand DEI fundamentally beyond the altruism and the inclusion and the beauty of the statement, you also understand the financial driver <laughs> behind it. So as much as I don't think that it should be a numbers game, the reality is that until people understand it better, that's what it will be. Eventually, I hope, optimistically, I'll say I hope that we get to a place where we understand that it is important just because it's important. People are people and they all need to be celebrated and loved and respected for who they are. I'm not talking about people who are just dicks, but, you know, <laughs> and, you know, the Obi in me wants to look at the world <laughs> through those very rose colored glasses and just say, just love each other. <laughs> but, the, the jaded side of me understands that 
that is not capitalism. And until that, that particular wheel is broken, that's not gonna be the driving force for a lot of folks. But I also think that the world is, is different in that the stage that we are all on has never been larger or better broadcast. And people are watching. I, I grew up in private school in New York City. So in a world of, of, of great privilege and access, but not of it. And so I think, like I said, the biggest deal is figuring out how to connect with people and how to leverage situations to your advantage. We all hate being told, especially women, to smile more. So I'm not going to tell anyone to smile more. <laughs> but the reality of effort is that your body, your aura, your physical being can do to incite being warm and engaged. Do a lot of that. Um, <laughs> it might not be smiling for you. Maybe that's not your thing. Maybe your face doesn't smile. I don't know. Some people are like that. But we all have that thing in us where we know how to engage with people. My mom always said, growing up, be true to you. Never change who you are. And I don't think that I ever have. There are times that the package may look different, but the content never changes. by saying I'm a really bad OB. <laughs> I'm a really bad Overland graduate because it took me a long time to wake up. That's Megan Karsh. Megan graduated as an art history major in 2001, and for the record, she's actually a pretty good OB. She teaches conflict negotiation at Stanford and has practiced and taught international humanitarian law all over the world through both the United Nations and Stanford's rule of law program. In 2017, she founded her own firm, The M Collective, where she conducts trainings on power dynamics and collective leverage in the tech space. Here's how Megan describes her work. I'm like, I'm a Trojan horse, right? Like, they invite me in. <laughs> No, seriously. It's, it's amazing. They invite me in to do trainings about interpersonal influence and collaboration or collaborative negotiation, about assertiveness and negotiation, these things. And then I get to teach about all the forms of power, about the power of collective leverage, all of these things. And then, like, three weeks later, I'll hear like, the group, like, started organizing and sharing all their salaries. And I'm like, boom. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a bad OB. I, I was living this life and I was making these choices and I was having these realizations about myself. And it took very long for me to realize like what role capitalism had in it. It took until my 30s for me to be like, wait a second. Like when I look at the places where I've been happiest working, I'm in countries that are, you know, there's much more of a sense of collectivism. They're far less individualistic. And it was like a light bulb went on. And then, you know, I had to go back and be like, oh yeah, like plenty of people told me that at Oberlin. It like just didn't click enough. <laughs> I, I would also put myself in that category. <laughs> well, and I forgive myself and I forgive you and I forgive all of us because when you live inside of a socioeconomic framework that shapes the legal framework, that shapes the political framework, that shapes the normative framework, it's very hard to become critically aware of it because it just becomes what is, right? So we've all been living in this reality that's our sense of how the world is. 
And people are really waking up now to, oh, it's, that's not how the world has to be. Like, how does this relate to capitalism? Like, I've always had these ideas about this group of people, but were those ideas perpetuated because they, they benefit capitalism? So, so that's actually, I mean, once I feel like I really woke up to that, that is why I now do some consulting within the private sector. I, I, I'm someone who has a very hard time, obviously, with like gaslighting and people lying to themselves. So I, I don't think I'm lying to myself. Once I realized that, I was like, oh, <laughs> I actually want to be in that space. Don't just say like, I have power or I don't. Critically analyze like, okay, what is the power in this system? And then if I feel like I don't have power, how, what leverage do I have? Because the thing is power doesn't matter if you're really smart about creating leverage. Because right now it is the product managers. It's the JD, you know, privileged white women like me. It's, <laughs> no, but these are the people who need to wake up to like, stop saying you have no power. Start getting really creative about the power you have and start using leverage strategically. And like, we can all do this, but it's going to need to be a collective effort, which means we're going to have to overcome our programming. And I'm still seeing it. You know, I have friends calling me all the time because I work in a conflict space. Like they're calling, you know, they're like, maybe you know something. You can tell me like, what do I do to make America racially just? And I'm like, first of all, (laughs) I can't answer that for you. But also... If you're not going to be able to do it individually and like take that totally crushing burden off yourself because what you'll end up doing then is nothing. Yeah, I love that. I've been doing a lot of little things just at work. I've been talking about going to protests, you know, because we're so programmed to not talk about politics. Also, I was brought in by the chief product officer, et cetera. And I tell him all the time, I'm like, you didn't handle this well. And I know that I can because of our relationship. And those are the the little things that make me feel <laughs> like I'm doing something. Not that. <laughs> the problem is we all write off these things where we say like, it's, yes. just, it's a little effort. It's a this, it's a that. And I'm like, and as the cellular changes, so does the corpus. And so everyone needs to start getting a little comfortable with good trouble and with discomfort. Um, So. I, well, and I love the message that you can do that anywhere. I think it's relevant to this values question too, because so often people try to use things as a proxy for like, have you made a values-based choice? And they'll look at like, are you working for a nonprofit or do you have this particular title or do you this? And I've always even when I was in the nonprofit world to lawyer friends who were working in the private sector, I was like, it's about how you do your job. It's not necessarily the job you embody, right? But like everyone, everyone has the potential to live their values and society does need everyone kind of approaching the issues from all different directions. And this came up for me in a really strong way in law school because I was part of the like public interest group and, and I, you know, knew I probably would be going into the nonprofit sector. Um, And a lot of my fellow public interest students were incredibly judgmental of our classmates who were going to be going into big law, you know, and earning a lot of money. And they were like, Uh, selling out and they, they don't have any values. They don't have this. They don't have that. And I was like, look, I don't think you're doing yourselves, you're not doing us or the world a favor by shaming them and judging them. 
So the thing is about like how you do your job, it's not necessarily the job you have. Because let me also say something about the nonprofit sector. So like I said, I've spent almost my whole career there and I still like two thirds of what I do is in that space. There's plenty of people who are approaching it with exactly the same, like, gonna get mine mindset. It's just a different commodity, right? Instead of money, it's competition over credit. It's competition over grant money. It's competition over, you know, it's a sense of, like, moral righteousness. Like, I own the moral high, high ground here. So the issue isn't so much, like, if you're private or public, nonprofit or not. It's that false bias towards competition and like this idea of like, I'm going to get mine and I need to get as much as I can. Like I said, I mean, I think my biggest takeaway is just focus on the process instead of the outcome, like how of what you do, focus on living, really living the values and working the values. And that can be done with like almost, in almost any role. So to take a hard right turn, (laughs) to actually talk more about how you've thought about navigating changes in your career? Let's see. So it's a mix. (laughs) So at times it's been really intentional. So like, for example, I mentioned that at the end of law school, I was getting a lot of offers, like I said, in, in human rights, like in health, human rights advocacy. And I, I very much was like, I am intrigued about this space. I'm wanting to kind of pivot a little bit. There have been other less intentional pivots where life has had its way with me. So for example, in 2016, I had been at Stanford almost five years. I'd been running the rule of law program. We had strategic collaborations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Rwanda, Cambodia, Timor-Leste. We were trying to develop one in Democratic Republic of Congo. Through a series of things, things that were going on within the institution, then also things that were going on with our project partners and culminating in a terrorist attack against our Afghan partners at American University of Afghanistan, burnout came for me. Just depletion between Cambodia and running the rule of law program. I had been, you know, at a full sprint for seven or eight years and I was just physically, mentally, and spiritually depleted. And I ended up not working, I think for like six months, which I was very privileged to be able to do savings and and other things. And when I came back from it, I was like, okay, I have to factor in things I never had a factor before. As I decide on the next step, I need to really think more about balance and sustainability. Turns out you can't spend your life sprinting, you know, life decided to teach me a lesson. And so since then, since 2017, I have really been a lot more thoughtful about this idea of how do I stay sufficiently capacitated? And I also needed to reevaluate my relationship with institutions. And while I watched, you know, institutions in America increasingly develop according to like incentives that aren't what I think they should be Mm -hmm. the last couple of years, like I work, I work for myself. Like I'm more working like consultant advisory capacities and I run my own business and it wasn't really even a choice. I was like, I can't do the kind of work that I want to do or show up the way I want to within some of the institutions like I used to work at. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so if I may, I'd love to speak to this, your original question again, just this idea of how do you live your values? Um, what does that look like really to have a values-driven career? It can't be codified in too strict of a way. I can't say to you like, okay, to have a values-based career, you need to do this particular, it can't be, I can't be prescriptive because it's going to look different for everybody. And here I really love Parker Palmer and I kind of love a Quaker approach to this. Are you familiar with the book, uh, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation? Do you no, know? Oh, but I okay. am now. I would, yes. I, and I love the Quakers. So. Oh, I would recommend <laughs> that to, to anybody. But he says about this idea of living your values, he has this gorgeous quote where he says, you know, before you tell your life what you intend to do with it, listen for what it intends to do with you. And that's sort of his take on the Quaker idea of let the highest values and truth guide everything you do. Let them be your North Star. Just kind of be able to articulate the values you're trying to serve. And I think that's what it looks like, right? It's it's going to yeah. look different for everybody and it should look different for everybody. Another quick audio disclaimer, Patty asked me to mention that this next interview is her first, and as such, some of the Zoom audio is less than optimal, but we learned as we went. Our next guest, Joel Solo, is a teacher in New York City, and like most Obies, Joel has some pretty strong opinions. Cuomo has always been a defender of Wall Street, not supporting renter demand, cut the New York welfare state to the dollars and accumulated wealth. Cutting Medicaid. And I guess I'm not like angry at people. And lots of them. No, I am angry at people. There were some real slam dunks in here, but unfortunately, much of it falls outside of the scope of this podcast. What we did include, though, are Joel's thoughts on living your values, the self-contradictions of the nonprofit space, and the role that work has played in Joel's life as an activist and as a person. I went to Oberlin from 2005 to 2009. I went in as an intended theater major. I wanted my kind of trajectory as I saw it at that point was I wanted to be an actor and eventually I wanted to open up my own youth theater. I had been real political when I was in high school, kind of around the Iraq war, mm. I participated in a lot of the anti-Iraq war protests. And I think the big lesson that I took from that was that you could get millions of people in the streets and it didn't necessarily mean that you had power. The, the kind of problem that I took from that is since then a kind of obsessive focus on what does it mean and what does it look like to build the kind of power that could stop a war. But at Oberlin, I started off studying theater because I, I don't think I thought that building that kind of power is possible. And so to me, what was possible was changing lives through things like theater. And I still think theater and, and art can change people's lives. I can't tell if I should say this or not. I uh, Let me just put it this way. I realized <laughs> being in the theater department that I didn't want to be in the theater department for the rest of my life. <laughs> I ended up switching to anthropology, which I think gave me a little bit more of a sort of internationalist perspective and also started to just orient me to the idea that there were alternatives to the way we lived in the United States and there were alternatives to 
the culture and the economic system that we had that were valid and legitimate. Once you kind of really internalize the idea that there are other options out there that should be legitimate, it puts into kind of stark contrast to the way our system tries to stamp out every alternative and the degree to which that is unjust and unsustainable. Uh, I got really into the Obama campaign in 2008. That was that election year. And that was the first time that my activism had gone from any kind of, it, it went from just like protesting to like knocking on people's doors and having conversations with them. And I learned for the first time what organizing was and fell in love with the, the kind of activity of knocking on a person's door and sort of convincing them that they had value as like a political subject. You know, and the Obama campaign was very easy to make that kind of claim is like, we get to vote for like the first black president and in Ohio that like really matters yeah, I just, I, I will never forget the the feeling of talking to people in that election in the way that I've long been sort of obsessed with how do we build power. I've also sort of been obsessed with like, how do we build movements that involve mass participation, not mass participation, like, all right, all these people go here and all these people march there. But like, how do we really make it so that people are thinkers and are agents in that process? So then I graduated into the 2009 recession. How did you, you know, what jobs were you looking at? How were you kind of preparing yourself? I'd long had a kind of internationalist perspective. Um, I mean, really an internationalist perspective kind of grounded my politics. I mean, I started learning about politics by like reading Chomsky when I was in high school through a weird fluke, which kind of taught me about U.S. empire. And I also went to uh, a number of talks at Oberlin one by like a geographer who had gone to Brazil. And she basically made the point that when she got done with her research and she was sort of like, oh, I wish I could stay with you. And the MST people were like, yeah, cool. That's great. You need to go back to the United States and like change your fucking trade laws because they're ruining our lives. <laughs> yeah, it was influential to me. And it gave me a kind of sense of like, if I have a degree of power and leverage to do the kind of good that matters to me, it is here in the United States and not off gallivanting an adventure world. At the time, my thinking was that if you wanted to be an organizer and if you wanted to do good and activism in the world, the way that you did it was you got an organizing job and that you worked for a good organization and thus got to do good. I do not subscribe to that anymore, mostly because I think that the vast majority of nonprofit organizations are not particularly democratic. They are run as businesses and they are run on pretty highly exploitative models of the workers that work at those nonprofits. Most nonprofits are based on like a sweet talker who's good in the media and good with funders. And that is like totally a setup for a lack of accountability. When I was in Ohio, me and my, me and my girlfriend were working for the same organization and we were organizing and she wasn't making her, she wasn't making her numbers in terms of like people that she needed to talk to because she was stressed out because she had like a, 
precancerous growth that she was worried about. So she was like racked with anxiety. And this was for an organization that like talked about social justice and how we're going to like, we're going to help people who are out of prison and we're going to do all this good shit. And they, they fired her and she like, thank God had healthcare with her parents. But like that kind of taught me a lot about, about sort of like the values and what you can expect from these organizations. And they were, you know, they were, they were accountable to their funders and they were accountable to the numbers that they wanted to put up on the board. And they were not accountable to us, the people who work for them. So I got to be real. I don't, I, I don't actually recommend that path for people because I don't think it's personally sustainable. I think it has kind of a lot of saviorism in it. I don't think that most of these nonprofit organizations have a real theory of change to make sustainable change. Most of the things that I said about nonprofits also apply to working for unions. Um, it's just that now the boss is the Democratic Party. And the boss of the Democratic Party is garbage finance people and tech people. But I liked the work that I did with the Fight for 15 because if the theater department conveyed to me that I did not want to be around theater people for the rest of my life, uh, working working for hard-headed women for the Fight for 15 demonstrated to me that I would like to hang out with welfare moms, public housing moms, and fast food workers for the rest of my life. I could I could die happy living and working with those folks. That's really crucial to know for yourself. It's, it's important to have dreams and ambitions. And it's also really important to make sure that those dreams and ambitions don't keep you from thinking about where you are and whether or not you're living your values literally right now. And I, I don't say this as like a kind of purist, but I, I say it to say that like, it is easy to kind of look off at some idea of what you want to do for yourself in the future and think like, I just need to take these steps to get there, blah, 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 blah. I just need to do this. And even though this doesn't feel right. And I think that leads to hardening your inability to hear yourself. And if you can't hear yourself, you're going to be much less able to hear other people. That's the really slippery slope to not being in community with people. And I think ultimately good activism and good organizing comes from like the relationship between your own gift and your own voice that you have and like the value of being in chorus with other voices. I think people say things like when we go back to normal and nobody believes we're going back to normal. There's no normal from here, nor for the most part would we have wanted it. You know, I I mean, since the Obama election, I have like completely gone off a dramatic left turn from where I was then and from the politics that to me Obama represents. But I think fundamentally Obama represented to so many people a basic break that the future does not have to be like the past in every respect. That's revolutionary. When you raise people's expectations of themselves and of the world they deserve, that's, that's how good shit starts. This has been All Roads from Oberlin, an independent project produced by Patty Stubel, Maddie Henke, and Julian Wirth. Big thanks to Danielle Mendakis, Megan Karsh, and Joel Solo for coming on the show. Our theme music for this episode was made by Claudia Hinsdale, and our sit cover art is from Stephen Metzer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>